Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-10. through 10. I'm going to entitle this section, How the Children of God Keep from Sinning. Our context is this. At the end of chapter 2, verses 15-29, through 29, John had taught his readers to not love the world and don't love Antichrist. So we start now in verse 1. Chapter 3 of 1 John. Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. The reason the world does not know us that it didn't is that it did not know Him. Now, this verse should be taken in context with the last verse of the previous chapter, as I mentioned in the last audio. So let's look at 1 John 2.29. If you know that He is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. Now, John is giving the moral test. How do you know I'm a Christian? Well, I'm doing, I'm following Christ's commands. I have been born of him. I am a Christian. Verse chapter 3, verse 1, we are called God's children. There's the, there's the connection right there. We're born of him in John 1, 1 John 2, 29, and we are called God's children in 1 John 3, 1. Now, the Greek for children is technatheu, which is literally children, some translations translate it as sons of God, KGV in the Mason New Testament. Well, the Greek is children, so it seems that would be the proper translation. In fact, the Montgomery, the NA, New American Bible, the NESB, the Weymouth translation, Young's Literal translation, and the American Standard Version all have children of God. So we are called God's little children. God's children. Now, the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. That shows how closely we are related to Jesus and how much the world hates both us and Jesus. Since the world hated Jesus, it also hated his disciples. And that is, a, is an idea that comes from John's gospel. He wrote this letter. He must have had it on his mind about being hated because he wrote it in his gospel, John 15, 18, and 19. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. As its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. And again in John seventeen fourteen, I have given them your word, Jesus says. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. John's already talked about worldliness, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. Jesus wasn't into that, and neither are his Christians and the people who are into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. They hate those who aren't. If you ever wondered how people who are in the world, why don't they just let us be, let us be Christians? They can't because our very lifestyle challenges them. Our very lifestyle stirs up their seared consciences and makes them think, oh my goodness, they're doing righteous and I'm doing evil and I might get punished for that and maybe, and so they start worrying and they don't like it. And then they start saying, you're just saying I'm superior than you. And they come up with all these stupid libels and, and slanders of Christians that are not even close to the truth if anybody knows what Christianity is, and they make up lies. They hate you. That is the normal situation. The world is going to hate Christians. Jesus said it, and John says it. The world didn't know us because it didn't know him, and that's probably Jesus, I think. Gil says it could be God the Father, because in John 17:25, Jesus says, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. Well, it's true. The world doesn't know God, the Father, God, the Son, because they're the two persons of the, of the one God. So it's not surprising that both are mentioned as being hated by the world. So it doesn't really matter whether that's God or Jesus. I think it's Jesus he's talking about here, though. Now, balancing off that hate of the world, there's the great, how great a love the Father has given us. It was a great thing that he 
call us God's children. He's given us the power to call us God's children, I think he says in John 1. That's, 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 that's a good thing. That's a, that's a very good thing. John, 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. Where is God? Let me read that again. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. The distinction there is between the time. So we're God's children now, but we're just ordinary looking people. People look at us, they can't tell that we're Christians or not Christians just by looking at us. But, ooh, what we will be has not been revealed. That's going to be even better. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When he appears, let me read a good quote to you about from John Gill about what happens when we appear. Or what, let me, let me read the quote as to what happens when he has been revealed Quote, though they are sons, they do not appear now as such as they will do when they shall be introduced into their father's house and into the many mansions there prepared for them. When Christ shall publicly own them as the children given unto him, and when they shall be put into the possession of the inheritance they are heirs of. Besides, they will appear then not only to be king's sons, but kings themselves, as they now are. They will then inherit the kingdom prepared for them and will sit down on a throne of glory, and have a crown of righteousness, life, and glory put upon them, and will appear not only perfectly justified, their sins being not to be found, and the sentence of justification afresh pronounced, and they placed out of the reach of all condemnation, but they will be perfectly holy and free from all sin, and perfectly knowing and glorious, they have a right to glory now, and glory is preparing for them. So basically what John Gill is saying in his eloquent fashion is, Things are good now because we're children, but it's going to get a lot better when we see him face to face, when he appears. Now, that would be the second coming, as John Gill says. Whenever you see appears or coming, you have to decide, was it, is it 87 they're talking about or is it the end of time? Here, it has to be the end of time because Christians don't change their state. Being like him, being glorified, in other words, we don't get glorified at 870, despite what some hyperprotest heretics like to say. We will see him as he is in his glorified human body. As Gill says, not by faith as now. We'll see him then by sight, not through ordinances as in the present state, but through those beams of light and glory darting from him with which the saints will be irradiated. Now, I've got to disagree a little bit with Gill. We don't know Jesus through ordinances now, through the law, through his commands. I mean, we obey his commands because we love him, but that's not all. You know, you could personally talk to Jesus now in the new covenant state, but it's not the same because we see through a glass darkly, whereas in the in, our glorified state, we'll, we'll see him face to face. Now, the fact that John mentioned that we're going to see Jesus as he is in his glorified body fits right in with the theme that John has in his book, his anti-docetic theme, docetism being that theory that says that Jesus didn't have a body, he's just a ghost. Oh no, John says, he's not only going to have a body, he's going to have a glorified body. He's going to stomp out docetism in spades. 1 John 3.3, 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Of course, a hope is a confident expectation in the future. As the NIV study Bible says, it's not a mere wish, but it's an unshakable confidence. So we have this confidence in him, if you will. If you have that, you purify yourself. Now, what does it mean to purify yourself? John Gill says, as we think of being glorified, we strive to be more and more like Jesus in this life. Because obviously, being glorified means that's a long way from sin. So you think about what you're going to be. So that carries over into the present. And you think, well, if I'm going to be like that, I don't want to, I want to get as close as I can while I'm in this life. I don't want to sin. Close to that is what the NIV study Bible says. It says by turning from sin, we are, we purify ourselves. 
Now, some people say that the Christian purifies his own heart. Gill and Clark say that no human can purify his own heart without Christ. So that's a caveat. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. It's not that we're sitting here doing the purification. What we're doing is we're contemplating Jesus, and then Jesus changes our heart. He purifies our heart because our hearts are flesh. Our flesh is so obstreperous that it needs to be put to death, as Paul says in Romans. The flesh must be put to death by the Spirit. So you're purifying yourself, but what you're doing really is letting the Holy Spirit purify you. There's an agent involved, the Holy Spirit. You don't do it yourself on your own. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of the law. Now, why does John just all of a sudden pop up talking about sin now? Well, he's been talking about sin, talking about getting rid of sin in, in people's lives, in Christians' lives, being like Jesus, being holy. But now I think he's referring back to those nasty heretics he's been dealing with. He says, these are lawbreakers. They're committing sin, and they're breaking the law. Every last one of them, every one. Sin is the breaking of the law. Now, what law is he talking about? Well, it's not the Mosaic law because this was the New Covenant era. John wouldn't be talking about the law, Moses, Mosaic law. Gill says the moral law of God, which is just a generic term talking about God's laws, which are manifested differently in the Mosaic times. Old Testament times, they were uh, Moses exhibited the moral law. You don't kill, you don't steal, you don't rob, you don't blaspheme, you don't commit adultery. But now it's the law of Christ who... Administers, administers this moral law. So I'm going to assume here that John says you're breaking the law, the law of Christ. As mentioned in two places in the scripture, the phrase law of Christ, here's one of them. 1 Corinthians 9:21. to those who are without the law, I am, I am like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, the law of Christ. You break that, you've committed sin. So we look at Jesus' commandments and his apostles' commandments in the New Testament, and we know that we are breaking the law. But Again, that's true of us, but I think that John is mainly talking about the heretics he's fighting. We go to verses 5 and 6 of 1 John 3. You know that he was revealed, as Jesus was revealed, by coming and being incarnate and living his sinful life and being crucified and resurrected. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there's no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him or abides in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or know him. Now here, this when we're talking about sin... It means to live a life of sin, a course of sin, a lifetime that is characterized by sin. Not somebody who lives a life characterized by righteousness, but sins occasionally as exceptions, but people who sin generally and who do something good exceptionally. You know, like say you're, you're robbing banks for a profession and then you, you pet your dog and, and you buy your kid a present on Christmas, the bank robber does that. Well, he does some a nice thing every now and then, but basically he's living a life of bank robbery, so he's a sinner. That's what he's talking about here, because he's, he's fighting these heretics. We know verse 6 can't be true if taken in the sense of not sinning ever. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. You ever known a Christian who doesn't sin every now and then, or even occasionally? And never does righteousness? No, that's not what he's talking about. It can't be. He's talking about heretics who, who are sinning all the time. They blaspheme every time they open their mouths. Now, this remains in him. That means you stay in him. Abide means to stay in him, remain in him. Everyone who remains in him, you stay close to him, and you're not going to sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the less you're going to sin, because you and him share the same nature. You're partakers of the divine nature. He's your brother. He's your spiritually adopted brother. He lives in you, his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit hates sin, and you are... The more you are in tune with this Holy Spirit, the less you're going to sin. 
John 15, 4 through 5, this is the famous abide in me verse that John also wrote, our same John. Remain in you, or abide in, excuse me, remain in me, or abide in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who abides in me or remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. You can do nothing, and nothing means zero, nada, vacuum, nothing. You can't do anything without Jesus. So basically the the vine sucks up nutrients and water from the ground and the the vine transfers that water to the branches that are on the vine and those branches produce fruit. Let's say it's grapes. Well, Jesus is the vine. We're connected to and we're the branches. We're connected to the vine and through that vine comes nutrients, water, living water, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes through Jesus and to us and then you can't help but grow fruit. It's going to happen. You're going to change. It's one of the great witnessing tools of Christians. Look what a bum I used to be. Look what a horrible person I, I am. And now look at me. All I can think about is my love for Jesus and taking care of my family or taking care of or helping other people, serving other people. Let me go back again to this phrase in chapter, in verse 6. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. I've already said that obviously it does not refer to sinless perfection as John Gill and NIV study Bible point out. Gill says it refers rather to a course of life characterized by willful disobedience to God and his law. And I've said that already. So the heretics were doing that. They were sinning. Now, Christians do not have to be sinlessly perfect to distinguish themselves from immoral heretics. You take a Gnostic, proto-Gnostic docetus who's out there saying his body doesn't matter. I can go out and have sex with whoever I want to and I cannot abandon my family and I can drink and eat and leave like a live like a glutton and and go to carousing parties every night well that's real easy to distinguish yourself in that case so i think john is not taking the hard case because sometimes since sometimes the heretics can insinuate themselves into the flock and they can behave morally on the outside it takes a while before they expose themselves but here if once you get down to the basic nature of who people are if they're basically a sinner you're going to tell them from an essential a person who is essentially righteous. Their sin is an incident of their nature, not the essence of their nature. You know, Paul said this, had the same idea that you're able to tell believers apart from unbelievers is the, is the general rule, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship does light have with darkness. So those those words, those Two comparisons are stark. Righteousness and lawlessness, you ought to be able to tell the difference between that. Fellowship and darkness, you ought to be able to tell the difference. Excuse me, light and darkness, you should be able to tell the difference in that. I'm always drawn to the hard cases, but remember, hard cases make bad law. The hard cases is when you have somebody that acts like a Christian and you can't tell. They, they were of us, but then they went out from us. And while they were of us, we didn't notice that they were heretics. Those are the hard cases. First John 3, 7 through 10, and we will finish up. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because his seed remains in him. God's seed remains in the one born of God. He is not able to sin, because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Notice that evident. This is a matter of proof. Who's the children of God and who's the children of the devil? 
Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother. There's a little mention of the love test, but basically this is the moral test. How do you know whether somebody's a Christian? Can he pass the moral test? Does he do God's work or does he do the devil's work? John starts out by saying, little children, referring to all of his readers, little children, let no one deceive you again, because John is either older than they are because they're little children spiritually, they're babes in Christ. Let no one deceive you. Here's Adam Clark speculating as to what these heretics might be saying. They could be saying, you can't be saved from sin in this life. You need to sin like us. It's impossible to get away from sin. Or they might might be saying, sin will do you no harm. You were adopted into the family of God. Sin cannot annul this adoption. You're a Christian, but it's silly to think you cannot sin. Well, that's deceit. That's the lie from the pit of hell. And then John says, how do you tell whether someone is telling the truth or not? The one who does what is right is righteous. In other words, is born again, is justified before God. That's how you know. That's the moral test. Look at what they do just to see is righteous. Why do you look at what they do? Because if you are abiding in the vine, you're naturally going to produce fruit. If there's no fruit, you've got to think, hmm, can I judge these persons by the fruit? I will know them by their fruit. Where's the fruit? No fruit? I suspect that the person, I will assume that the person is not saved. And that includes people who go down to a Billy Graham evangelistic meeting and raise their hand. I mean, I know somebody right now, a family member who was with me at the time years ago, over half a century ago, at a Billy Zioli meeting and raised his hand and walked down to the front. And since then has not shown one single solitary indication that he's following Christ. So I assume he's not saved. I've got no other reason to think otherwise. Again, it's hard to judge this sometimes, but as far as humans can judge, I don't think he's saved. Only God knows for sure. I remember we used to call people like this Lady Clairol Christians. Only God knows for sure. Remember the old advertisement, Clairol advertisement, or something about whether she's got dye in her hair. Only her hairdresser knows for sure <laughs> what color her hair is. Now, in verse 7, the one who does what is right is, is righteous. Now, that obviously does not mean that one can do things in order to become righteous. That should go without saying. It means that one who has been righteous by Christ, made righteous by Christ, will do good things. In other words, works do not justify us, but the justified man works. As the way Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it, and the way I like to put it is the works are the fruit of our salvation. They are not the root of our salvation. This is a theme that's all through the scripture. We need to mention it every time we see works because we love works righteousness. Look at me, God. Look at the good things I've done for you. I cannot, I don't know one Christian that had been caught up into that sometime in their life, especially in their early Christian life. You got to avoid it like the plague. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So that means with Jesus, you can do everything, but it's Jesus doing it through you, not you doing it in the power and strength of your own flesh. Because the law is weak through the flesh. You try to keep the law, you try to do good things through the flesh, the law is weak. You can't do it. And then the law condemns you and you feel miserable. Why would you want to do that? Just, just... Think about Jesus as he is when you're going to see him glorified face to face and meditate upon who Jesus is and get close to Jesus. And you're naturally going to start doing some stuff you didn't think possible, like praying for your enemies, things like that, that people don't, the natural man doesn't do. Now, in verse eight, John says, the one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Well, first of all, what's the beginning? The beginning of what? The beginning of his of his creation? No, because when Satan create, was created, he hadn't fallen yet. So he wasn't evil. He was holy and good. Is it from the beginning of the time that he fell? 
As Jameson Fawcett and Brown, the NIV study Bible suggests, as soon as he fell, he started sinning. Oh, that could be. Or it could be from the beginning of man's creation. The devil fell before man did. So it wasn't long after Adam and Eve that were created that, created that Satan went into the garden and tempted them. So from the beginning, the devil was sinning either from his fall or from Adam and Eve's fall. Not sure what it is, but he's been sinning, he's been sinning a long, long time. And like father, like son, if your father is of the devil, guess what? You're going to imitate your father and you're going to sin too. Remember the whole purpose of this passage is to help John's readers distinguish the heretics from the sheep. So the sin John is talking about here is gross external sin. I think the less serious internal sins that everyone commits would not allow anybody to distinguish the heretics from the sheep. And so Gill says the sin that is being talked about here in verse 8 is he who makes sin his constant business and the employment of his life, whose life is a continued series of sinning. I call that serious sin. And these heretics were likely antinomians against law, so they were out there feeding their flesh, going to their gluttonous and drunken parties and having sex orgies and all kind of stuff like that. Now, in the end of verse 8, John says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose. What purpose? To destroy the devil's works. That's the reason Jesus came here, destroy everything the devil did. It always makes me feel good when I think the devil getting his own King Jesus, Christus Victor, beating him. Sometimes you wonder when you look at all the evil that's in the world, but remember, Jesus came in the world to beat him, and he's going to beat him completely. He's already started and he's going to finish the job. And the implication that John's making is, the reason John probably brings this up at this point, he's saying, look guys, these heretics are children of the devil, and guess what? Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. So if he's going to destroy the devil and the works of the devil, he's going to destroy these heretics. So maybe you would think that it might be a good idea not to split yourself away from the church and go join these people. Stay away from them. Verse 9, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he's been born of God. Now, again, we need to say this is not talking about he's not able to sin. It does not imply sinless perfection. It means he's not able to engage in a constant moral rebellion against God. As John Gill puts it, he cannot live in a continued course of sinning and with pleasure and without reluctance and so as to lie in it. Adrian Rogers had this expression that the Christian lapses into sin and loathes it. But the non-believer leaps into sin and loves it. It's a great way of distinguishing the two as John distinguishes the two. The idea that the one born of God cannot sin, that means sin continually as a lifestyle, not sinless perfection. The one is born of God, has God's seed in him, does not do that. That idea is expressed also in this same letter, 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. That means does not sin continuously. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So being born of God has certain privileges. The, the, the devil has his children, like father, like son. The sons are destroyed. The devil is, will be destroyed. And likewise, the sons of God don't sin because God is righteous. We are righteous too. His, God's seed, remains in us. What's his seed? The Holy Spirit that he planted in your heart the sperm, if you will, the spiritual sperm that came into your life and made you a new man, born again into a new person, that seed re remains or abides in you, it stays in you, and that, therefore you're not able to continue to sin because you have been born again. Now that's a hard verse because you know people that are apostates and they backslide. You see them all the time like this moron 
Joshua Harris, who said, you know, he wrote that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, because I want a good Christian wife. And then he walks out on his Christian wife and walks out on Jesus. Well, you know, either he was not saved from the beginning, and so he's able to sin now, or he's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness big time. I've noticed that most of these people who walk away from Christ, like there was some member of a Hill song that did it, what they usually do is say, well, you know, I'm just not going to walk the Christian life now, and they sort of turn agnostic. They they have a hard time just denouncing Jesus. They just kind of say, we're taking a vacation from Jesus. So those are hard cases, those cases of apostasy. But again, I'll just say either they weren't saved to begin with, but I must say we have a problem here in verse 9 because John says point blank, the one who has been born of God does not sin. He is not able to sin. And so is apostasy sin? You walk away and you say you're not going to have a thing to do with God anymore? Seems to me like if they're born again, they're able to sin. So we have to say if someone is able to live in a continued course of sinning with pleasure and without reluctance, so as to lie in it, that person never was saved to start with. However, if somebody apostatizes like Joshua Harris and he lives in misery, well, then... Jesus is working on him and, and confronting him and convicting him of his sin. Only God can judge those hard cases. Ladies and gentlemen, with that shaky conviction, we are now finished with 1 John 3, 1 through 10. How children of God can keep from sinning. They are born of God. They have the seed of God within them. And so that seed grows and they don't sin anymore. So, ladies and gentlemen, we will now contemplate our next audio, which is 1 John 3, verses 11 through 24, to finish off the chapter. That chapter I will entitle, that portion of chapter 3, I will entitle, Love One Another. And so I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoy this one. 